HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. This is Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. I've been part of the HRN community for almost 10 years now, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, <laughs> because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, interesting stories from the world of culinary history. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. And this year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary. But we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member it's as simple as this. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting A Taste of the Past in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network, and each week I bring you tales of culinary history. I like to call it a journey. And today, even though as I'm recording, it's August 1st, in the heat of the summer, I'm thinking about apples. Usually, apples and fall kind of go together at just... Reminds me of the cooler temperatures and the crisp fruit that comes ripe at that time. But this year, something new has popped up on my radar. Not new. I have seen it before, but I have to say not often. I'm looking forward to my taste of my first apple of the season in about two weeks. Now, that's pretty odd for me, but it is the Gravenstein apple. And... Apple lovers have said that the first good apple experience of the year is biting into a Gravenstein apple. Hmm. It's also one of the first varieties of apples to be harvested, hence I'm looking forward to it in a couple of weeks. In fact, the well-known botanist and horticulturist Luther Burbank is known for saying, it's often been said that if the Gravenstein could be had throughout the year, no other apple need be grown. Well, 
the Gravenstein apple is has a bit of, of interesting history to it as well. And it's been around as long as at least what we can trace it to, uh, around 16, the mid-1600s in Denmark. And it didn't reach our shores until about 1800. But it's unable to compete on the worldwide market where apples are available throughout the world even when they're not in season. In fact, Slow Food USA, because it can't compete on the world market and fewer people, I guess, will hear, are growing it, Slow Food USA listed it on the Slow Food Arc of Taste as an endangered American food. And Slow Food, as many of you know, is dedicated to maintaining biodiversity and forgotten flavors. It declared this Gravenstein, as I said, in danger. With that designation, Slow Food has, and along with several other groups, has taken on the preservation of the Gravenstein apple as a special project. But why can't it compete? Well, I have joining me today a couple of people to discuss just that. Chris Middlestead, a produce expert and founder and CEO of The Fruit Guys, and Rebecca North, Director of Quality and Supply Chain at The Fruit Guys, have been paying a lot of attention over several, the several years um, since Slow Food has taken on their fight to supporting the Gravenstein apple. And I have a lot of questions for them, the whys and what's happening and how can we help. Welcome, Rebecca and Chris. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Okay, Chris. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Chris, I'll start with you first. Um, First of all, you both, all right, Chris, you're a founder and CEO of the Fruit Guys, and so people are out there listening saying, what are the Fruit Guys? Can you just, we'll talk about that a little more later, but right now just tell us what, what is the Fruit Guys, the fruitguys.com, and when did you start it, and what's it all about? Sure. Um, we deliver fresh fruit to offices as a way to help companies replace their break room junk food. Ah. And we started in 1998 out here in Northern California, and we've grown it as a family business now across the United States. And part of our mission is to buy from as many local growers in the regions we're in as we possibly can during the growing seasons. So different regions are going to have different growing seasons. Different regions are going to also have different commodities in the area. And we really want to take a very focused approach to supporting and celebrating local and small farm agriculture in those regions. Well, uh, Rebecca, as the director of quality and supply chain, are you out in the field in these different regions uh, finding farms and visiting the farms? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we have found that just spending face time with these growers and understanding how they grow and what they grow and biting right into the fruit as it's coming off the tree. You know, there's nothing quite like biting into a Gravenstein apple right next to Lee Walker, who's been growing these pretty much his whole life. Wow. All right. Well, let's get to the Gravenstein apple. Um, what What's the story there? Why can't they compete on the worldwide market? What are the problems behind it? Why is it becoming an endangered food? Um, yeah, Chris, we want to start with you or Rebecca, either one. Sure, I can start with that. Um, on, the, on the market side, 
the, the challenge with the Gravenstein is that it's growing period, its harvest period is very short, and it also has some interesting characteristics as an apple that make it actually difficult to grow. So they have a very short stem, and when you see apples growing on a tree, they'll often grow in clusters. And as the apples actually get bigger, because that stem is short, uh, the apples put pressure on each other, and they'll actually, uh, in the wind or just from the pressure themselves, they'll actually break each other off and fall on the ground. Huh. So when you walk through an orchard, you can always tell Gravenstein trees from afar because they're the trees with tons of apples underneath them that are sort of have fallen from the tree. Where if you look at like a Fuji, they'll have a much longer and firmer stem and they they don't shed the fruit as much uh, as part of the growing process. So the tree doesn't, from a yield standpoint, it's not yielding as much as some of the other varieties do. Um, they're also harder to store and ship, uh, and they're just a more delicate apple. And Rebecca, if there's anything else I've missed, you can <laughs> add in there. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely add the aesthetic challenges that the Gravs have. Um, well, to clarify, we affectionately call the Gravensteins Gravs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, though some have the beautiful red blush from where the sun hits, and many will have russeting which is a little bit of a brown spot on the top of the apple. Mm -hmm. And that's just caused by micro-cracking in the outer skin of the fruit, typically caused by environmental stressors that compromise the strength of the peel. It's edible. It even has kind of a nutty flavor adding to the flavor profile of the fruit. But it has thin skin, bruises easily. The skin can become kind of waxy. It, it can become a little bit mealy if the fruit isn't refrigerated. Well, I and it, well, go on. I'm oh, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I had heard that if that they are good for, uh, you know, as soon as they come right ripe, that they're you know good for a week or so, and then they start to deteriorate very quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. And we've seen with so many of these other commercially produced apples that they can last a very long time and the gravenstein that's not the case you'll see them for maybe a month through hmm. for the whole year yeah yeah i know i go to the market and and you know even let's say last week in july and you know there are a lot of apples on the shelves and they've been in cold storage well they don't none of them really taste you know as that first crispy bite of, of, you know, the season when they come ripe, but, but they're quite good still. And, and that's a shame that the Gravenstein just can't hold up. Is this, do you think this is part of the reason? I mean, well, aside from, as Chris described, the difficulties in growing, um, and then their short shelf life. Well, tell us the, the background. I think there's a little, probably more in the background when the apples, well, Tell us a little bit about the history of where yeah. the apple came from. So the, the we can go back even to World War II from a market perspective. And, and there in, in the Sonoma County region, specifically in Sebastopol, there used to be about 7,000 acres of Gravenstein apples grown. And today there's only about 700. So you're having wow. only about 10% of the acreage in production today. And part of that is because the land is actually so good at growing apples 
that folks in the wine business realize this, and you've actually seen a lot of those orchards convert over to uh, to wine growing. The, uh-huh. the sort of the sandy loam soils is actually quite good for both the Gravenstein and it's really good for Pinot Noir. The Gravenstein production only is going to produce about $400 um, uh, per acre ton, if I understand it right, and the and the Pinot is going to produce about 2,800 per ton. So it's just from an economic perspective, a market perspective, it makes it difficult to then find the land where the Gravenstein is going to grow well uh, and then produce the yield that a grower is going to look for as they as they think about their their land production from a, a business standpoint. Um, it's also not a very, as we talked about, it has a short shelf life. It doesn't ship very well, so you can't really move it around out of a local region easily for long-term storage. In the past, during World War II, when there were these 7,000 acres out there, they were uh, turning a lot of these into applesauce so that they then could ship them and use it in that capacity. Um, but th- but that trend has also really changed, and, and there's been some losses of some uh, canning and packing facilities in the Sebastopol region, which has also affect, affected the ability to kind of turn that product into something that could could be stored for longer periods of time. So it's both a combination of the apple itself and then sort of the economic realities of farming that I think has, has affected the marketability of the product, but also the survivability of the product as well, too, which is why we want to bring attention to it. We want to get people excited about it, and we want to get people saying, wow, I really want to experience this fresh product because it is something so unique and, and um, is something to be savored while we while we have it. Right. As I said in, uh, you know, in the beginning of the show, I, I'm looking forward to I'm keeping my eyes open, looking forward to, to seeing it. Um, I know I've seen it probably on an apple chart and list of apples, but I don't, I really can't recall that I have ever tasted a Gravenstein. And um, now I've seen a lot of photographs, and I said looking at the apple charts, that for those who aren't familiar with the Gravenstein either, it's, um, as Rebecca, as you described, it's it's this apple, it has almost like red stripes, little the red striation. It's not your typical red apple, correct? Yeah, that's right. What is it, t- and what is the... Um, what is it, the taste? I mean, what is it? Is it crisp? Is it hard? Is it tart? Is it juicy? What? Tell me about when it's first harvested. Well, when it's very first harvested, it can be pretty tart and even a little chalky and sour. One of the growers I spoke to the other day about them asking if they were ready said, the only thing they're good for right now is whiskey sours. Huh. <laughs> but once they start to sugar up a little bit and hang a little bit longer, they just become this juicy, sweet, tart explosion. They have tender flesh and floral notes and high acid and low tannin content provide that distinctive crisp tart apple. So they're and good that, oh yeah. So they're good for eating out of hand, you're saying. I mean that's that's a Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, they're a very versatile apple. They're a favorite for pies, juices, sauces, vinegar, because of those high acid, low tannin characteristics. But for out-of-hand eating, it's excellent also. Oh, that's that's interesting. That's good to know. 
Um, I had read someplace that um, one of, uh, to follow up on uh, Chris's comments about the difficulty of growing it, that in harvesting they have to be, well, sort of as you just described, Rebecca, they, you can't really just strip the tree. They have to be picked maybe five times so that they're consistent quality, so they, they're actually at the same ripeness. Um, but that, I don't know if you've heard that or if you know about that as well. But oh, that, yeah, that's okay. right. The trees produce ripe apples at different times huh. throughout and, the harvest season, which means multiple picks of the same tree. As a grower, that could definitely be a deterrent from wanting to grow that variety of apple. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me, now, since the apple originated, as far as we know, in Denmark, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's been said that maybe it was growing somewhere else in Europe, maybe in Italy prior to that, but that's, you know, that's undocumented. But we do know that it was growing in Denmark. And in fact, it became Denmark's, I think, national apple or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then the, as, as happened during those years, the Russian trappers came and they, and they brought them with them to America in the 1800s. Where, so somehow, Chris, as you said, that, that soil um, in the Sonoma Valley was perfect for apple growing, um, as well as grapes, but where else is this apple growing? Um, you know, rel- relative to the United States, I mean, you'll find it in different regions occasionally. Uh, from our experience, I think the majority of the stuff that we see does come out of the Russian River area um, in in Sebastopol. Um, and, it, and, it, and there's an element, too, of the historical context, as you mentioned, that that was the apple that folks brought at the time. And, you know, Rebecca works with a lot of the farmers up in Sebastopol, and she'll be talking to them, and they'll actually have a direct family history with the, the planting or the development of the orchards that are up there. I mean, some of the folks that are up there have had multiple generations and, and people that either brought or they're brothers or cousins brought the trees and, and planted them there, and they sort of founded themselves in that region. Um, so that's, so, so it's, it's interesting that, that you can grow it in other regions, but this has happened to be an area that really has just aggregated this particular apple, and it's sort of found its, its home there, to be honest. Huh. Yeah, I know there are, there are lists on different um, fruit um, growers' websites, and they say, "Well, you can find it," but they'll name a specific orchard in, let's say, Connecticut or New Hampshire or Vermont. Because I was curious about living in the Northeast, I was curious of where I could find it in the Northeast, but kind of sparse um, as opposed to, as you said, Sebastopol. In fact, there, it's been such a popular apple, or was such a popular apple there for so long. Um, there was a Gravenstein Apple Fair since ni- around the early 1900s. Is that correct? Can you tell me about that? Do you know? I'm sure you know about that, right? The- yeah, we, we, we do, yeah. We, uh, the Gravenstein Apple Fair, uh, a couple of years, we, we judged pie-eating contests for Gravenstein Apple mm. Pies up there, which was, which was <laughs> lots of fun. Yeah. And it is a great uh, pie apple as well, too. And there's, there's a lot of folks up there that celebrate it and and uh, make sure that they're keeping that tradition alive. And Rebecca, I don't know if you, you know, as a uh, as as a buyer and, and a connoisseur of this apple as well too, if you have any thoughts into that. Yeah, what's funny about this fair 
and I guess any fair centered around the harvest of a commodity is that it's a little bit a roll of a dice of when the fruit is actually going to be ready. Right. So if they schedule the fair too early, the fruit is going to be sour and people are going to be disappointed. (laughs) And if it's too late, it's going to be a scramble for the growers and the growers might be a little disappointed. (laughs) So it's just, it's been neat to see how the date changes just because the harvest changes. So Mm -hmm. this year it's August 17th and 18th. And it's a big, gigantic fair, you know, pies and and fresh apples. Great. That's interesting. And Chris, you were going to add something about that? No, I was just going to support Rebecca's point that it's it's really, uh, they're trying to judge the harvest. And that's one of the things that we get really excited about, actually, in supporting local agriculture and we want to bring attention to is that life is not as uh, perfect and clean, I think, as people in a modern food environment are led to believe. And we still are at the uh, behest of the elements and the way that nature tells us we should be eating based on the weather. And it's a good reminder, actually, that that it's one of the things to celebrate when you're finding local foods and, and local harvested foods from small farms. Yeah, right. Um, I was, and I was really interested to read about that historical significance of the apples' use during World War II. I mean, that so that was that was the main apple that that fed the troops, as far as you know, applesauce that was transportable. Um, why? Because they couldn't, you know, why why the Gravenstein? Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. I mean, I to be honest, I, I can't give you an exact answer for it. I do know that the um, there was a lot of local production there. There was a there was a um, a rail line that they had built to be able to easily harvest the apples and then bring them down to the uh, the Bay Area. So that could have been a factor as well. And I, in talking to some farmers, I, I think they believe that was. Um, and there was the ability to actually then bring the apple to market, which was an important piece of it as well back then, too. Yeah, true. I mean, and, and if if the, they were ripe and they had this whole harvest and they knew they couldn't do anything else with it, I mean, you might as well. When life gives you apples <laughs> with a short life, make applesauce, right? Um, you know, I was thinking about it. I said, well, why? It, okay, it has a short shelf life. But then I'm thinking, well, so do strawberries and so do do blueberries and plums, but then I got to thinking, oh yeah, strawberries just need a patch to grow in, and blueberries just need a few low bushes to grow in. I mean, you're talking about an apple orchard. That's a lot of acreage for a relatively small yield, right? So it then it all started to make sense to me that, especially in that area where Grapes and wine became such a big industry. Uh, you know, what are you going to choose? Kind of a kind of a no-brainer there, I guess. Um, but still, the apple, this apple is, you know, one of our heirloom varieties, and and it's definitely worth saving. Um, you and your firm, Chris, have done a lot to help support the. Um, the survival of the Gravenstein apple, as well as the as the Sonoma um, 
Valley. I mean, everyone, so many groups have rallied to save this apple. Do you think that you have all somewhat succeeded thus far? I think I think we've succeeded in bringing attention to it. I mean, there's unfortunately there's a loss of acreage continually. I mean, my wife and I were up just a couple of weekends ago talking with one of the growers, and he was showing us a piece of land that had been in his family for a long time, and because of the uh, dynamics of, of um, multi-generation family, the, the land had to, part of the land had to be sold. And we were standing there looking at what had previously been an orchard of 500 trees that literally, unfortunately, was um, barren. And then it had uh, large mounds of mulch. And the mulch was basically the ground-up Gravenstein apple trees. And it was just heartbreaking. I mean, you literally could feel the land kind of almost seizing in front of you uh-huh. as you looked at this. And it, so that whole region has seen a lot of change. And, um, you know, again, I, one of the reasons we wanted to bring attention to this is, is, one, to preserve these varieties. But it's not necessarily just for really sort of sentimental reasons. It's actually for what we consider the way to look at agriculture as a, as a broad and diverse ecology, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're... Right deeply concerned that a monoculture is, for lots of different reasons, continuing to be the path we go down. And we want to celebrate and bring attention to and get people behind the idea of diversity in agriculture because we think it's both a really important thing for the environment, our food system, and to be honest, even our democracy, because we think that it reflects lots of small farmers who are stewards of the land and active members of their community. And those are things that we want to bring attention to and and believe that actually supporting an heirloom product kind of brings all of those pieces together as as part of the way we're looking at the world. Right. Well, you brought up the small farms um, and supporting the small farms. And I want to talk about that and some of the programs that your company is involved in um, directly supporting the, the farms and the Gravenstein Apple. We're going to take a short break, so I want to talk about that, those programs, when we come back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, 
Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Chris Middlestadt, a produce expert and founder and CEO of thefruitguys.com, and Rebecca North, Director of Quality and Supply Chain for The Fruit Guys. And guys, uh, guys and girls, guys and women, uh, I, I, one thing I, I didn't mention is something that I had um, read about when I was doing the research on the Gravenstein, and that is uh, some mention of it being a triploid variety. I don't know what that means necessarily, but that it doesn't necessarily, um, I don't know, is that like not reproducing well, or what? what is that? Do you know what that means? Rebecca? Yeah, so the triploid just means that it has three sets of chromosomes instead of the usual two. And what that ends up doing is producing a tree that grows 20 feet high or more. Wow. And that's tall. Yeah. <laughs> and which is a liability for labor. Yeah. Harder no, to pick. Yeah, you see apple trees that keep, you know, they keep them trimmed down or they just don't grow that tall. That's yeah, that is tall. Wow. Yeah, and many times in Washington especially, they will trellis apples. Huh. So that they're easier to pick. Yeah. And for the larger, more recognizable commercial varieties with high yields, that's the way they grow them. Yeah. Um, there is also a variety that I read about where the, um, that I, they call it a sport variety. It's a little hardier than the, than the traditional Gravenstein. It's a red Gravenstein, and it's, it's also it has more red coloring. What, um, what about this one? Is this not an an equal? Is this just a, a a different variety altogether? A red Gravenstein? It's just a different variety. I think um, you might be referring to the rose, what rose brooks? I don't know. Called? I just read red red Gravenstein that it was uh, a little hardier and could withstand more difficult conditions. Um, but I, that's that's all I knew. <laughs> And so mm-hmm. thought I could get some information if you knew if you had read anything about it. I, and I saw a picture. It was um, it, it did look different. It was yes, I think you're right. It was a rosier in color, what they referred to as red, but it was, had more consistent red coloring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the Rosebrook the variety that that's a different variety than the red and green variety a, a little bit. And the, the funny, the, like to Rebecca's point about these trees being so large. I was walking through uh, John Colling's orchard recently, and we were just walking, and, and one of his Gravensteins in the wind had actually split and broken off a huge branch because they get so heavy with fruit and they're so big that um, you ha- they actually have to put wooden stakes underneath the arms to hold the arms up because huh. the arm would collapse and split off the tree filled with fruit if they didn't if they didn't actually support them. So uh, this particular tree, that support had blown away, and then the weight of the um, apples actually split the branch right off the tree. Wow, yeah. Um, that's, the, that's a danger, and even the canopy, the smaller, shorter apples that create, you know, like a canopy, um, great for the young ones. They, they're, they droop to the ground, and they're easy picking also for the deer and the other wildlife. But, yeah, I can see where that could be. But in a tall tree, a, a real danger because they have, they could really ruin the tree. Um, 
Well, you, as I said, as I mentioned before the break, Chris, your company has done a lot to to support some of these small farms and, and smaller initiatives and and sort of protect and the survival of the Gravenstein apple. Um, can you tell us about that a bit, some of the these programs? I know you've got um, uh, funding a grant program and uh, the community fund. Tell us about some of these programs that you that your company has. Sure. Um, so we've been in business about 21 years, and we've always wanted to have close relationships with farmers. And relative to the Gravenstein program specifically, when we many years ago learned about the challenges of growing Gravensteins, we put a promotion together specifically for Gravenstein farmers we work with, where we sell a special tea box. And the not only do we obviously pay them for the fruit that goes into that box, but then the proceeds... Uh, a percentage of the revenue of the proceeds that come from that box go back to them as a donation as part of this particular promotion. So that's what we're doing as we go into Gravenstein season now. But we have a larger program that we started in 2012 that's called the Fruit Guys Community Fund. And the Fruit Guys Community Fund was spun out of the Fruit Guys as a nonprofit project where we put money into the nonprofit on an annual basis, and then we distribute that out to farmers as grants between about $2,500 and $5,000 a piece as a way to help them with sustainability projects on the farm. And since about 2012, I think we've given away now over $250,000 and funded 71 farms across the United States. Wow. And these aren't farms that just work with us as suppliers. Any farm can apply. And what we're looking for is how a farm, because farmers are always inventive and ingenious people, how we can give them the seed money necessary to do things that help them with sustainability projects, whether it be environmental, uh, economic, or social projects that are going to help their farm become more sustainable. So as an example, we've done things like funding hedgerows for farms where they're having pollinator problems, and then they become a sort of a pollinator uh, <laughs> area and centralization area where they're actually now on their farm able to actually have pollinators live there and not only help their own farm but help then farms around them. Huh. Um, we have done solar uh, pumps for wells. We've done... Um, uh, all sorts of interesting projects. We've done things like put owl boxes up in orchards where a farmer is having uh, problems with little critters and <laughs> wants to do natural sort of pest control. Uh -huh. So there's all sorts of things we've been thinking about, and, and farmers actually are proposing to us ideas, and then we'll, we have a grant approval committee, and they look at that and, and then give out these grants. That's wonderful. Um, and I just I, I laud you for that work. I mean, obviously... It's important to you, being someone who you know deals in fruit. In fact, I, I need to know more about this this fruit guys company. So you are nationwide, and so any workspace company can can call up or go online and order like a weekly delivery of fruit for their the, for their office. Yes, that's correct. So cool. we do that's different cool. mixes of fruit, and we bring fruit. Um, weekly, daily, uh, every other week, monthly, whatever the company's schedule uh, requires. Mm -hmm. And we bring it into their break room and then 
they're basically buying it for their employees to use during the day or the week so that their employees have something healthy to eat. And again, we're so, we celebrate fruit, but then at a, at a deeper level, we also celebrate really local and small farm agriculture because we believe that that's an important uh, uh, piece of our American economy and heritage and food system that we want to make sure that we're, we're doing everything we can to, to keep stable and, and help grow. All right. And, and Rebecca, as you said, you, it's, there you are out in the field going around to, let's say, in the Chicago area or Philadelphia area, going around to these small farms, right? And um, so you've, you're all over the country then. That's amazing um, to deal with these small farms. Um, this fruit box that you mentioned, uh, I mean, the, the Gravenstein apple box that you mentioned, Chris, um, is this the one that you partnered up with the Slow Food um, in the Russian River Valley uh, organization? For the Gravenstein Apple Box, is that the one that that I read about? That um, that's where the proceeds go back to the farmers. Yeah, originally it was Slow Food Russian River that we talked to and came up with this idea with, and now the uh, the program goes we directly to the farmers that um, we buy from. So uh, we look at the three or four growers that we're working with in that region, and then we figure out sort of what percentage of product they sold us and then we sort of divide up the proceeds pro rata after we've sold the box that go back to the farmers so one of the things that's happened is um one of the growers stan devoto told us that with the proceeds he was able to actually um plant 300 more uh gravenstein trees so we were excited to hear that the program itself was actually then supporting and propagating uh the 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 fruit uh, the gravenstein fruit itself as well that's great. Yeah, um, what can is this? Are these um, boxes available nationwide, or just in the in the, uh, the your area in California? We do ship them nationwide so that people can taste what the Northern California sort of Russian River Gravenstein tastes like, and um, it is a little out of uh, our normal operations where we're trying to bring the stuff that's in the local region to folks. But we believe it's a good cause to do that. And if we can introduce people nationwide and get them excited about something that's specialty and get them thinking about what's special to them in that region, uh, and we can also use it as a way to give back to the Gravenstein farmers, we think it's a win for everybody. Yeah. So what they find that at fruitguys.com as well? or um... That's correct. Yeah, okay. they can go to fruitguys.com and, and see the Gravenstein apple promotion. And if they have questions, we, we have folks that answer the phones all the time, and, um, you know, it's 877-FRUIT-ME. Uh, so if they'd okay. like to Fruit call me. us, that's okay. what guys, yeah. 877 <laughs> fruit me. And these are available in in mid-August, usually? And well, well, Corp, depends on yeah. when they're ripe, right? Okay. That's correct. It, but we're anticipating, like the Gravenstein Apple Fair, that'll it'll be mid-August. Yeah, but the fruit that you deliver normally, the regular weekly fruit boxes or monthly, whatever they are, that's... A mixture of all kinds of fruit, right? I and mean, whatever's in season, in whatever locale, depending on where you live, right? That's correct. Yes, yes. exactly. And and they're going to change throughout the year. I'm sorry, Rebecca. Did, did you have a thought on that too? Oh, sorry. Um, well, yes, we will be putting the Gravenstein apples in our mixed boxes as well, for as long as they're around and eating good. Mm-hmm. Um, and through each region, we're working with local growers and finding what tastes best and including it in our mixes 
for our regional customers in those areas too. Well, that's that's really interesting and and um, really uh, honorable programs that you're involved in out there. And I I just think it's such an interesting concept and. I, as I said, I am going to look for the Gravensteins in my area as well. Um, and for anyone else out there listening, if you should find Gravenstein apples at your farm market, get them while you can uh, in the coming weeks because they're not long keepers, as we know. But, but then you can always look forward to some good applesauce, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, Chris Middlestead and Rebecca North, for joining me and sharing the information on this this little-known apple, but yet a very important one um, with big taste. And uh, I wish you all the luck in in continuing to help support this this effort of surviving, of helping the Gravenstein survive, and uh, spreading the word. That's what I think is very important, too. Thanks so much again. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're more than welcome. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. You know that you can find us on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out radionetwork.org slash donate and help keep us on the air. We are a member-supported nonprofit organization, and we need your support. Thanks so much. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.